these underlying currents that aren't talked about in our economic system that causes malinvestment. And it's a lot of forsaking the possibility of the future for immediate gratification today. Hello there from New York City. How are you all doing? It's been so good to be back here. Mixed feelings, though. I absolutely love this city. Every time I come back, I love it here. But you can see that the COVID restrictions have certainly put some limitations here and it's had an impact and some businesses have been lost and I've seen some places boarded up. Also going to dinner. I went to this steak restaurant the other night with a few Bitcoiners and it was pretty empty, which was kind of weird for a place on Midtown on a Friday evening. So yeah, a bit weird. I've got mixed feelings, but honestly, I do love New York so much and I'll, hopefully I'll be back soon. And it's been so good just to get here and catch up with some friends. And I will be popping into Mainnet today. Hopefully I'll be able to catch up with a few of you. Anyway, how are you all? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I'm using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And today I've got an interview with Rob Hamilton, where we're going to be discussing the embedded growth problem. But before that, I do have a message from my amazing show sponsors and today i'm going to be kicking off with casa the safest way for you to store your bitcoin now forgotten passwords sim swaps phishing attacks there are just too many ways for you to have your bitcoin lost or stolen but with casa you never have to worry about your bitcoin again because with a Casa multi-sig wallet, you take custody of your Bitcoin, but you only move Bitcoin by signing transactions from multiple wallets. And do you know what you get to do? You get to distribute those wallets into different locations. And this protects you from a range of mistakes, errors, and vulnerabilities. Now, I've been a customer for about a year, so if you've got any questions about it, you can hit me up in my DMs on Twitter or drop me an email. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. You can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. Next up, we have sportsbet.io, the very best place for online gaming because they're such badasses. They accept Bitcoin, and I'm loving that the football season is back. I'm loving that Liverpool are smashing it, and also Tottenham have had back-to-back defeats. The season is going back as planned. Now, if you like football, you can get in on it. You can take a bet with Sportsbet.io. But you know what? Even if you don't like football, they've got everything else covered. They support tennis, motorsports, US sports, and even esports. And for new customers, they always have a range of promotions available. So you want to find out more, please head over to Sportsbet.io forward slash promotions, which is S-P-O-R-T-S. BET.io forward slash promotions. Also, let's talk about Exodus Wallet, who I am using as my mobile and desktop wallet for my Bitcoin. And many listeners will know because I talk about this all the time. UX is super important to me, and Exodus crushes this. They really make it easy for those who are new to Bitcoin to safely manage their Bitcoin. With the Exodus desktop wallet, you get to secure and manage your Bitcoin in one beautiful application. And with their mobile wallet, you can send and receive safely using a QR code or address, knowing that Exodus automatically checks these for errors. Make sure you check it out yourself at exodus.com or search for Exodus in the Google or Apple app stores. Okay, on to the show today, and I've got a really cracking interview with Rob Hamilton, who recently wrote an amazing article for Bitcoin Magazine, which is linked in the show notes. Please do go and check it out. It's long, but it's a good one. Now, the article is basically a response to my interview with Eric Weinstein, and this idea of a great stagnation in our economic systems and institutions, and of course, how Bitcoin fixes it. Now, you might not have heard of Rob He's a little bit under the radar, but honestly, he's absolutely brilliant. He crushed it, and it was great to hang out with him. We went out for dinner afterwards, got to know him a bit, and I would definitely be getting him back on the show in the future. So also check out the show notes and follow him on Twitter. He's a badass. Okay, so onto the show. If you've got any questions, suggestions, please do jump into my Telegram group. Hope you enjoy this, and I'll see you all soon. Hey, doing, Rob? I'm doing well. How are you? Thank you for coming in for this. I'm very excited about this. Uh, so you, I can't remember like the chain of events, but you sent me your article. You were on Twitter talking about uh, Eric Weinstein and kind of uh, the Fucked after your the interview. Well, the previous well, we yeah. can talk about that. Yeah. Uh, and I told, I shot you a note on Twitter saying, "Hey, I just wrote this article for Bitcoin Magazine yeah. that hits on a lot of the stuff that Eric comes from in his perspective." And you told me to shoot it to you in an email. And a couple of weeks later, here we are. Here we are. Uh, it's an epic article. It's not the shortest. It's a good read. Uh, we will put it in the show notes. Everyone should read it. It's very, very good, and it touches on a few things I wanted to talk about, uh, or I want to talk about with you specifically. Sure. Um, but what's the background to you approaching and working on this article? Absolutely. And yeah. we should tell people what it's about. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, it's not a 
It's not a short article. Um, Adam Back tweeted out saying it was long but good. And I showed that to my wife. She said, oh, that describes whenever you talk about Bitcoin, long but good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so uh, the article uh, from Bitcoin Magazine, it's titled, Why Has the Physical World Not Progressed Like the Digital? Um, It was an inspiration from... I've had a couple conversations, brushing conversations with Eric Weinstein on Clubhouse. And uh, being able to piece things together over time, there was a Clubhouse room that was called Why Are Media Politicians uh, and uh, Professors All Lying to Us? And he got on stage and he laid out this little clip of something called an embedded growth obligation, which jogged my memory. And he left the stage and I was kind of like, there's a little bit more meat and potatoes. There's something deeper down here to start discussing. Um, and that's where kind of the jump off point for me writing the article was. And specifically also, Eric, after the price went from 65000 to like 35000 he started, there was like a two-week period where he kept joining the Bitcoin rooms on Clubhouse. Mm-hmm. And he's like, guys, I want to let you know that like, you're not scaring me away. Like if I was actually an enemy, I'd be doing victory laps right now because Bitcoin crashed. And I want to let you know that like, I'm here through thick and thin. I think what you guys are doing is really important. And I want to, you know, if we can find out and be fellow travelers and allies, that would be great. And I thought that was a really, very enlightening thing, just like being able to like have these passing conversations with Eric, because that, you know, I would consider him a good faith actor and someone who sees the world differently. And I think that, you know, there's been some brush points with him and Bitcoin, Twitter in general. Uh, I just would want to say that I think that he has a lot of value to add. And, uh, the jump off for the whole article was this three-hour-long interview between him and Peter Thiel from July of 2019. Yeah, I think I've listened to that. Oh. It's episode one yeah. of his podcast called The Portal. It was the kickoff yes. episode. And if anything I've said today is more interesting, you should definitely go check out that full interview too. It's really rich, deep conversation. Yeah, I've definitely listened to it, but mm-hmm. not not in prep for this. I listened to it. I'm sure I listened to it on a drive a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I like Eric. I, I do. Um, I enjoyed the interview with him. It didn't go any way I wanted, mm-hmm. but I believe I believe he is acting in good faith with regards to Bitcoin. Yeah. I think he cares. Mm-hmm. Um, and he left, despite what anyone thinks of that interview, and I've got my own personal criticisms of it, but he def- he left uh, an indelible you know ink on me. Um, I have not been able to stop thinking about that point we were saying, like where you said, "I believe in you guys." Like, what the fuck are you doing? Like, what are we talking about? Yeah, here? what are we talking about? I, I rewatched really watched the interview. Yeah, getting ready to talk with you. Yeah. And, and that's been in my mind ever since. And it it's done a couple of things. It's changed my approach to Twitter a little bit. It's changed my approach to discourse a little bit, mm-hmm. and it's changed my approach to the shows I want to make. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, trying to get away from just just celebrating price gains and actually starting to think about, yeah, what what the hell are we doing? Right. So, uh, yeah, I'm I'm with you. I'm 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 a fan of Eric's. No, I think that's great. Uh, I think the the interview also listening to it and kind of being mutually frustrated with the conversation, and I think there's like a core tension. I think this is not specifically in the article, but I've been thinking about this a lot. There's this core tension with how Eric views the structures of today and the problems and complications we have in society and how Bitcoiners view it. Bitcoiners fundamentally believe that the money is broken and that's caused a bunch of fallout and because of that and a lack of growth and just a lot of downstream complications in society. And that's what the Bitcoin fixes this meme comes from, Mm -hmm. is that if you fix the money, you could fix the world, another Bitcoin meme. And... Eric paints a different picture, listening to him a bit more. And this isn't in the article, but I think this is an important point from the lens and perspective he views things. In 1961, there was an academic, uh, Derek DeSola Price, uh, who pointed out that there was this p- exponential growth in the number of PhDs and like academic papers that were being published. And with all of this like boon in science, we had this incredible range of growth and prosperity in the world. And later, Nixon comes in and removes the, you know, it closes the, the gold window and the fallout of Bretton Woods. And the way that I would view it as is that he sees that the technology started to stagnate first. Because what happened was at the parabolic growth rate you were having with scientists, you were going to get to a place soon where like every man, woman, child, and dog was going to be a PhD. And that's not sustainable, right? And this is talking about 
we'll go into in a moment, embedded growth obligations and how our structures in society built themselves after the Bretton Woods Conference in 1944, post-America winning World War II and kind of this new uh, global arrangement of economic dependence. And there's one key thing that in that long three-hour interview with Peter Thiel and Eric they talk about is that you, you have two poles in society. You have growth and you have violence. And what happens is, is that when growth disappears, everything starts becoming zero-sum and the only way you can gain is by taking from someone else. And that's where usually when you see fallouts in like economic instability, conflict breaks out because there's no longer a seen promise into the future of what could be done, right? Like, like how can you honestly grow and like plan a future for your family and your kids? And when that starts drifting away, people drift towards violence. And I think that's a, a, a brief way of laying out maybe how Eric sees that it's technology that downstream stagnated the money, whereas Bitcoiners see it is that the money stagnated, so it then downstream consequences stagnated technology. So it's almost like a chicken and an egg in finding out what was the piece that broke first. Could it not be like a symbiotic relationship between money and technology? I would agree. Uh, so the way uh, I view money is a technology. Yeah. Right. And if money is a technology, um, have you ever been apple picking? Mm, strawberry picking. Strawberry picking? Yeah. Okay. So at an apple orchard, um, if you have the rows of the apple trees, you're going to have the low-hanging fruit that yeah. are really easy to grab. And then you can sometimes find really nice apples, but they're, they're a little bit further out of reach, right? You have to be taller, like at a step stool or something. If, if money is like the ladder that allows us uh, as a technology to be able to reach further and further into the future and being able to grab like the, the previously unpulled fruit, if the money breaks down as a technology, it's going to cause technological stagnation as well. And like a very simple example would be, you know, when we were all cavemen beating each other up with like rocks, the fire and the wheel were massive technology events, but that's really low hanging fruit. Yeah. Um, when you start thinking about uh, the large economic boom that happened in the 1940s and 50s, this is kind of like a golden era of capitalism in a post-World War II world in the United States. This is where you get the white picket fence and the whole suburban sprawl. Everyone like gets to live the American dream. Usually when people are talking about what the American dream is, they're talking about that golden era. Uh, if the money all of a sudden starts to fragment and break, you start throwing miscalculations and everything around where you're going to have a more difficult time being able to plan for the future and being able to like organize a society going forward. And because of that, you have these breakdowns in being able to like invest in those future like larger scale projects. And so much of post-World War II, well, leading up and through World War II was nuclear. Like in, since 1952, we've had nuclear weapons. And then also all of the aerospace engineering that was required to send those nukes to the other side of the world. And that's where all of the intellectual capital was like focusing on being able to master these elements that 30, 40 years before then would have been a dream. No one would have thought the idea that you'd have a weapon of that scale or being able to send rockets across the world would have been real. Mm-hmm. But then we almost like we got there and then because of the economic stability that came from that, we kind of froze. And this is kind of the great stagnation that I talk about in the piece is that the world of physical atoms has a, had a great stagnation and the only kind of boon that we've had in growth and if technology is kind of the seed growth and what kicks off um, to be able to have organic natural growth would be like physics, right? The reason that electrical engineers were able to figure out the microchip, most of like the technological gains over the past 50 years have been in the world of bits. And this is, I mentioned as well in the article, that you have this dichotomy between atoms and bits, and atoms have largely stagnated. And now you have bits which have had this their own kind of parabolic rise. Moore's law, mm-hmm. if you're, and for anyone not familiar with it, every two years... Uh, you're able to double the number of transistors on a microchip, but the cost get, also gets cut in half. So this is why your parents' computers, you know, in the 80s and 90s, uh, would have been much less efficient and much more costly compared to today, right? So you've, we've had this incredible tech boon in the world of bits, but we've had this stagnation in the world of atoms. Um, Eric describes that if you were to walk into a room today and if you removed all of the screens, does the room look fundamentally different from a room in the 1970s, short of like stylistic? fashion aesthetic choices? Not really. Uh, Peter Thiel phrases it another way where if you're in the um, world of science fiction and you're like Star Trek, you have like Captain Picard and he has like the supercomputer, right? And like we've been able to build the supercomputer from Star Trek, but we don't have the holodeck. We don't have warp drive. We don't have the replicator. We don't have any of these other science fiction like, like goal reaches. We've been able to master the computer down well, but you know, all of these other pieces of technology have really stagnated and there hasn't been much gain. 
Right, so there's a couple of things I just uh, want to work through with you first. Please, yeah. If, if we were trying to crystallize mm -hmm. what the problem is that we're dealing with in this conversation, you, uh, is it specifically the stagnation of atoms and development? Beca or, because I think Bitcoin has come from the point is that uh, if they're coming from the money, it's the uh, unsustainable nature of the fiat currencies and the instability it leads for, for people and society and, and general unfairness. But yeah. that's not what Eric's particularly talking about. So mm -hmm. are we both approaching two different sets of problems which have alignment but from two separate starting points? So I think they're directly related. Um, in 1971, when Nixon closed the gold window, we basically detached from the material reality of economic reality. We no longer were having a money backed by gold. And we were able to perpetuate the illusion of growth for many years by going through, go, by leveraging debt, not you know basically running uh, budget deficits, spending more than what we make and what we collect in taxes, and uh, more recently of a phenomenon, but uh, being able to kind of control interest rates and uh, quantitative easing, right? The that I think is a very core piece of this illusion of growth that we've been able to do is because since the physical world started stagnating, we didn't have additional tech boons. Everything that we've had in technological progress has largely been in the world of computers. It looks like, you know, like you're living this incredible time of crazy technology, but a lot of things aren't the same. Like a lot of things are the same. Like uh, it's just a, like I'm, we're in like New York City right now. Like the, the city looks very much like it was when I was here in the '90s, right? Like the infrastructure hasn't updated, right? Like being able to th think of it in that way, where um, once you leave your computer screen, there hasn't been a lot of big changes in the world. But what what changes are we missing? What what are the expectations? Because when you talk about something like warp drive. Okay, mm -hmm. that seems a little bit far out. Sure. Like it still could be like some super complicated technology. I, yeah, I don't know how far away. But when you talk about going into the living room and it's the same room if you take away the screens, what, what are we actually missing? Well, this is kind of uh, an economic calculations. It's the unknown, right? We, we can't speak to what we could be missing. Um, this is a, often an argument that someone from like the Austrian school would make with um, money printing. Like, oh, we're able to bring economic prosperity today. And we say, Yes, but we don't know what we could have had had you not intervened in the market forces, right? So it's this problem of an unknown that we can't provably show what the alternate reality would have been. But the question is, is that if you had more organic market interactions, would you have been able to have things arrive sooner, right? Or would you have progress, right? Um, I also want to, I am not a physicist by trade by any means, so I'm not going to pretend that this is me trying to like give the good faith interpretation of Eric's perspective on things. Uh, but that's where I would say is that you, you, it's an unknown unknown. We, we can't say how things could have been otherwise. Okay, so the crystallization of the problem is that we've missed out on certain types of innovation. We've missed out on certain, uh, that techno the crystallization of the problem is that technology as a progressive force in society has had a stagnation. And, to and if technology is kind of the fuel that allows growth and economies to build forward, uh, we've been able to create an illusion of growth by money printing and controlling interest rates and keeping them lower. That would be the way I'd, I'd think of it. But we have had innovation in medical care, medical treatments. Mm -hmm. we've, we've got some pretty interesting innovation in putting people into space at the moment. There's uh, a new space race. So it's, it's not like we've had no innovation. So the space thing is interesting, right? We landed on the moon in 1969 with the equivalent computing power less than a graphing calculator that you would have in high school today. Mm -hmm. And now, like... We have, like with SpaceX and Blue Origin, like they're sending themselves into space in low Earth orbit. We haven't been to the moon since 1972. Well, there's nothing there. But it's, it's just, not the, the frontier of the unknown to be able to push things forward. I mean, like, I would be, like, I think of that thing in the moon, I was like, why the fuck would you go? There's nothing there. It's just like a big dead rock. Like, at least with Mars, you've got resources. Sure. I, I think it, the idea is just ultimately that we, we've lost our ambition in a certain way, right? Because, like, why isn't there a moon base to be able to do research, right? Like, this is. I think there's a fair a fair credit to be given is there has been progress in in some capacities, but I think that the interference with the functions of money and investment when you lower interest rates, you it's something called like a hurdle rate, right? If you're an investor, mm -hmm. uh, the you you have your baseline return is if I just held it in a bank, mm -hmm. how long would I have been like what would have been my return been? And as interest rates get lowered, 
you have less of uh, a moonshot idea to be able to kind of invest into the future. Okay. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm... No, I, th- I think I understand where you're going with this as well, because if you look at something like air travel, uh, we had Concorde. And Concorde's gone. Concorde's gone, and we haven't had supersonic air travel since. Yeah. And no one's uh, investing in that. Mm-hmm. It, it, actually, they're investing in just more efficient versions of what we have. Mm-hmm. Whereas there are people out there who would love to be able to fly to New York from London in three hours and they would pay royally for it. Yeah. That innovation's just not happening there. Let me put in here the formal definition of like what an embedded growth obligation yeah. is. Because it's one of the core drives in the article. Uh, it's how long, um, at what growth rate does an institution need to see for it to maintain its honest positions? That's how Eric defines it. Uh, I think Peter Thiel in that interview gives like a, a good summary where he talks about, since he used to work at a law firm, you have a law firm with a bunch of partners, like the senior positions in the law firm. And what you're going to have happen is, is that you have a bunch of people coming in from schools that are like paralegals. They're working their way through the legal, like the, the corporate structure to, to advance to that high level. You can organically support everyone making it to the top as long as there's a baseline growth rate. The moment growth starts to stagnate, you almost have like a pyramid scheme dynamic unfolding where you have all of the members, the, the junior partners in the law firm looking to get promoted, but since the law firm isn't growing fast enough, some of them aren't going to be able to make it to the top of the institution. And this is where you almost have a prisoner's dilemma form where the leaders of our institutions at large have to maintain, whether subconsciously or consciously, uh, this uh, position of an illusion of growth because it's what kind of keeps the underlying power structures underneath them, everyone who works there, to keep it going. Uh, I I, I make this point uh, about IBM in the article. Uh, IBM was one of the people who originally started like the the home PC movement and a lot Mm -hmm. of technology innovation. Since 1995 to 2020, IBM has done $200 billion in stock buybacks. So taking their own existing cash flows, buying shares of stock, and using that as like just a way to park their money. The company today is only worth $127 billion. Which means they, they, they've, in the past 30 years, they've taken more money than what the inter- current company is worth and had just thrown it into stock buybacks. And you have to think, like, I wanted to move away from the, the legal example, right, is that well, why does this happen? Mm. Cor- or, you know, people in executive suites of corporations, they get primarily paid based on stock options. Yep. And so what's the, what are you going to do if you have a big pile of cash in your quarterly earnings? Are you going to maybe invest that and squirrel it away for a 10, 20-year moonshot investment of some new technological innovation? Because that's what IBM used to do. They came out of Bell Labs. Like They did like a lot of innovative work in the world of computers. They just went and bought stock because it was the direct way for the people at the head of the institution to be able to profit, right? Right, okay, so, okay. Yeah, I get what you're saying. Yeah, so but that's yeah. the opportunity cost is what happened if IBM took that $200 billion and had invested in other like, projects? Yes. We don't know what would have happened. Maybe some of them would have blown up on the launch pad, right? But you can't say that like that would have had no opportunity to be able to like make the world a better place through investment. So this is just basically the board having a misincentive of how to allocate money. Yeah, that's a great way of looking at it. And then another way would be like uh, universities in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have a, a bunch of professors who are teaching grad students who are one day looking to become professors themselves, at a certain point, there's too many professors. You can't like all the departments are full. You can't hire anyone else. And what was done. Uh, was you know making the discharging like you can't declare bankruptcy in the United States for your student loan debt. Mm-hmm. So you're now trapped our youngest, most likely to take risk people in society, and you've locked them into a large debt that they can't break, they can't get out of. And at the end of the day, like if you look at in a macro sense, like the quality of education and your job prospects aren't maybe what they were compared to like the 70s and 80s. If you went and got a degree in the 70s and 80s, we went from, I think, educating uh, 7 to 8% of people to like over half of the country. And this is a perfect example of if now if half the country has bachelor's degrees, it's not much of a distinguishing factor anymore for entering your job, like the, the, the marketplace mm-hmm. of, of jobs. And it's all at the end of the day gone to a large bureaucratic bloat of administrators and larger glut, right? So this is like these underlying currents that aren't talked about in our economic system that causes malinvestment. And it's a lot of forsaking the possibility of the future for immediate gratification today. 
And I think this is part of the, the structures, the, the, the deeper structural issues of where, you know, what Eric talks about with these conflicts and maybe seeing the world a little bit differently. And the opportunity, I think, with, with about Bitcoiners and Bitcoin as, as a culture is the, Eric mentions that the one group of people that are immune to embedded growth obligations are individuals. If an individual uh, is able to step outside a power structure, they're able to kind of speak that truth to power. And that's a really liberating thing because if you're able to, you know, communicate truth, you're going to be able to try and write these power structures in a way. And I think Bitcoiners, I think almost culturally uh, are prideful in the fact that they are individuals first. So these embedded growth obligations, they mm-hmm. don't just affect institutions, they affect companies, but yeah. they affect institutions, they affect uh, the government. I mean, we often hear about, uh, you know, you hear about like growth is, I don't know, Say in the UK, I'll just pick a random sure. number. Growth is going to drop to one percent next year, and it's seen as a disaster. Yep. Whereas um, the economy is still growing, but that has a massive impact on investments and the stock markets, and it has like this trickling effect. Um, but what we're saying is, well, okay, a better question is, why does the embedded growth obligation exist, and uh, how disastrous is it to, to not see growth? So. I think the theory of and, and researching uh, for my article and mm-hmm. this interview was you've had a new structured world organization in the post-World War II era. Mm-hmm. And I think there was an idea that, hey, we all have thermonuclear weapons now, all the major powers do. It'd be better if we worked together in economic growth and trade as opposed to fighting each other. Mm-hmm. And this goes back to the model of you have two poles, you have growth and you have violence, mm-hmm. fundamentally in the structure of a society. Uh the reason why is because when we just left World War II, we just had this natural, like everyone felt like this uplifting and like large economic boom. And when that started fading, this right around the time where Nixon closed the gold window mm-hmm. in 1971, and we've been able to perpetuate it forward by messing with the money. Yeah. So um, I forgot your other question, though. Uh, well, why did, firstly, is why does why? it exist? But what are, what's the actual impact of... Uh, not not seeing any growth like like is is it is it uh is it a red herring is it like a is it not that big an issue or is it, we created such a structure like a uh, especially with globalization and the the way the stock market works that, that we if we don't have growth that there is actual downstream issues i would say the way the economic system is currently structured there's absolutely a problem if we stop growth and i actually call okay. like covid in the article was like a it was a margin call on embedded growth obligations because we had to tell the entire world to stop. Yeah. And we're still reeling from supply chain issues and trying to understand what does it mean to restart an economy. Uh, I think in the way things are structured right now, we have to grow to be able to service our existing debt. Because right now, what you're not going to have happen is you're not going to have um, political leaders step in and say, okay, we're going to cut all the government spending and increase taxes to make sure we can pay down our debt. So it's all to service debt. A lot of our, like the way our, the United States right now, you need growth to be able to service all of the debt. And the, but yeah. the debt keeps growing but the, faster. Yes. And that's, yeah. <laughs> and it, it makes me yes. think of um, my interview with Brandon Quitton, where we talk about fourth turning. Mm-hmm. Um, and that usually ends with some kind of violent event. And it feels like we are heading to head, head first into some kind of economic crash at the moment. I, 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 something like, was it global debt is. Four hundred percent larger than GDP of the yeah, world. Yeah, Greg Foss, I think, has made that yeah, point. We've yeah. got these negative yielding debts. We've got massive inflation. Like we're heading into tricky times. And, and this is the critique Eric has: is that we can't afford weak men to have bad times because we now have nuclear weapons. Yeah. Before this point, you could have had a war or a fallout, but we've never had the ability for a single person or small group of people to destroy the rest of the world. Yeah, and that's where you have to be on eggshells, being very careful, talking about if things go south. We, that that's a dice roll that like I'm not personally comfortable with. Like I have kids, I know you have kids. Like yeah. I don't want to have to navigate that tightrope, right? Yeah, I I'm not keen on a nuclear war. I, I think it'd be a bit shit. Yeah, it definitely. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm like, where the fuck? It would be a real damper on this podcast. Yeah, yeah. Oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> uh, okay, so sure. I want to separate uh, what the Bitcoiners are thinking mm-hmm. from what. Eric's thinking. Okay. So, s- specifically, well, actually, let's 
Eric, what, what does Eric explain that his solution is to this? Does he have a solution? So this is a really interesting point and a part that me personally, I was frustrated listening to your interview was like you, Eric would say like, you guys are the money guys. Like, let's go take this fight to them. And like, I need capital to be able to kind of break this, like almost like a signed slush fund, right? Yeah. To basically say, let's route around, which I think is incredible about Bitcoin is that we, we, we leveraged a new technology that had never been seen before to route around corrupt institutions, mm-hmm. right? We were, I can go down to the Federal Reserve here and I can hold up picket signs saying stop printing money. What is that going to do? Nothing, but I can go buy Bitcoin and I can go hold my own keys. Mm-hmm. And like, that's a, that's a much more uh, impactful way of routing around the corruption as opposed to trying to fight within the system. Which also, it feels a little bit like what Bukele is doing on a national level with El Salvador. Yeah, right, because he's beholden to a U.S. dollar. El Salvador doesn't yeah. have its own currency. And being able to fundamentally route around all of those trappings in the IMF, I know he's been fighting back and forth with yeah. them, that this is a way of saying, I don't. I, I can route around your corrupt institutions and I can instill something that's better for my citizens. Yeah. Absolutely. I think it's a great way of viewing it. And to bring it back to the, the interview with Eric, he was kind of like, you guys are the money people, like, we need money. We need to start doing capital slush fund. I'm not sure about you, Peter. I don't have a spare, you know, couple million dollars laying around to like patronage to a science fund. It's not that I don't believe or think it's a worthy endeavor, but for now, I think me individually, my responsibility is to my family and making sure that like everything is good there. Mm-hmm. I don't have a bunch of Bitcoin to go throw into like a science slush fund. And I thought that was kind of a frustrating point of impasse was that he was very keen on, you know, using this newfound money and capital structure to be able to bootstrap around the corrupt scientific institutions as he views them. But it's hard for us to be able to, like, or, like how do you organize that? It's a really messy conversation that's, you know, for me listening to it, it was frustrating because like, how do, like from Eric's perspective, I was kind of at a loss at how do I help fight back if I don't have a bunch of money that I'm willing to give to scientists to run around this? Yeah, it's, it's more than scientific institutions for him now though. He's, I've, I've seen he's been expanding his like pool of uh, institutions that he is pissed at. Yeah, and I also see him. He's been a bit quiet recently, but he's also he's he's been talking more about Bitcoin as well. So I think he's close. We've got him I close. Think, I think we got him close. Yeah, for sure. Next up, I talked to Rob more about the Great Stagnation. But before that, I do have a message from my amazing show sponsors. Okay, first up, we're going to kick off with BlockFi who recently announced the launch of the BlockFi Rewards Visa Signature Card. Now, for people who are living in the US who own or are interested in owning Bitcoin or stacking more sats, then the BlockFi Rewards Credit Card provides the easiest way for you to stack Bitcoin because you get 1.5% back in Bitcoin on all card purchases. And guess what? There's no annual fee. It is the smartest way to stack stats. And not only that, you get 3.5% back in Bitcoin during your first three months of card ownership and you get 2% back in Bitcoin on every purchase over $50,000. If you're interested in finding out more, then please head over to BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. Next up, we have Ledger, the world's most popular hardware wallet. Now, a hardware wallet allows you as a Bitcoiner to take custody of your Bitcoin. And I have been a Ledger customer since early 2017, and the Nano S I bought back then, I am still using now. That's how fucking good it is. Now, Ledger makes it easy for you to safely manage your Bitcoin using their Ledger Live software, which interfaces with your device. And you can even connect your Nano S to your Android phone and manage your Bitcoin on the go. If you want to find out more, please head over to ledger.com, which is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. And next up, we have Gemini, who I'm using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin, but I've still not sold a single sat through Gemini because we are in a bull market. I'm not selling. Now, I have been using the Gemini app for buying the dips. I also set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin, and I'm yet to see a better or easier interface for buying Bitcoin. With a streamlined trading view, you have access to all the tools you need to understand Bitcoin and start investing, all through one clear, attractive interface. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to Gemini.com, which is G-E-M-I-N-I.com. And this week, we are finishing off with my newest sponsor, Compass Mining. But they're not just a sponsor, like all my sponsors, really. I'm a customer of theirs, and I'm now mining Bitcoin with them. And I've been mining Bitcoin for a month now, and I have mined 0.100654 Bitcoin, which right now is worth about $4,400. You know what? would be high. Probably be over $5,000, but we've had a little price dip, but it doesn't matter. I am not selling. So it's great to be back mining, and you know what? I fucking love these guys. Wit has crushed it. Compass has crushed it. 
and they've made mining accessible to everyone. And as a Bitcoiner, I'm happy to be supporting the decentralized growth of the hash rate. And it's so easy to get onboarded, and now anyone can buy in Bitcoin. Just pick your machines, choose your hosting facility, and they get everything done for you. If you want to find out more, please head over to compassmining.io, which is C-O-M-P-A-S-S-M-I-N-I-N-G dot I-O. Let's back to his Yeah, yeah, right. what are we trying to do here? What the fuck are we doing here? Like... It's, a, it's such an important question, and mm-hmm. it's uh, this is why I find the El Salvador project so interesting because it's like, what the fuck are we trying to do here? Well, they're trying to route around international institutions. He, you know, they have issues with their relationships with the IMF and the World Bank. They are beholden, as you said, to the US dollar, which means they're beholden to the impact of $8.5 trillion of debt, which is likely going to become $12 trillion very soon. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are beholden to, uh, well, they're routing around the remittance companies now. I mean, yeah, the corporations. Yeah. He's put 50 ATMs here in the US with the 200 in El Salvador so people can wire back money for free. Mm-hmm. So, that, like, he's using that to route around these institutions, right? Yeah. Um, so what are we trying to do? Is, is, is this the goal? It's to route around the institutions? And what is the impact then? And there's lots in this. And then how does it all play no, out? No, it's, it's a, it's a, I think it's an important question, right? And Because it's it's one thing to just kind of go on Twitter, have fun, like, shitposting and, yeah. like, having fun pushing buttons. But, like, as Bitcoin, as a project continues to succeed, I think there's a couple of things that I view personally as, as important. Uh, as one, just education and evangelizing. Uh, I've spent a lot of time on... Clubhouse talking to people about how do I, what's a hardware wallet? Like, mm-hmm. how do I do this? Right. And I do that out of my own spare time because I care and I wish I had someone like me that I could hop on a call with and talk to about this stuff early. Right. So that's you just start a podcast. You just get, you get everyone. <laughs> you literally can ask everyone every question you want. There you go. And still not know what an X pub is. That's okay. We'll get you there. Peter. <laughs> we'll get me there. What's going to happen first? Is Eric going to go full Bitcoin or are you going to get an X pub? I think Eric's going to go full Bitcoin. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we'll get nuclear war before you get an X pub. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I think I've got one. I just don't know where it is. <laughs> Oh, did you drop it on the way I, here? I think so. Where do I put my X pipe, Danny? <laughs> I don't know where I put it. I had it. I had it, and then I lost it. Oh, Can I get another one? Yeah, maybe a Z pub. <laughs> a Z pub. We're gonna go to a pub tonight. And, That's all right. Uh, fuck. We're gonna we're gonna drink again. Oh, man. I'm so sorry. Sorry. Okay. So yes, I interrupted you. Yeah. So like, what are what are we doing here? Yeah. Right. Is, is ultimately the point. And for me, like evangelizing. I, I don't think Bitcoin's at a place of price appreciate where I could be a capital allocator. Um, not to steal his thunder, but uh, I listened to American Hoddle's talk at BitBlock Boom, mm-hmm. and he was talking about uh, you know, like an obligation of Bitcoiners uh, of being the capital allocators of tomorrow, right? And being able to uh, destroy their one-time Cantillon effect. Because if Bitcoin price appreciates because the federal government is mismanaging the dollar, we mm-hmm. inadvertently are going to get wealthy off of their miscalculation. Mm-hmm. And what we could do is idea of like building institutions and, and investing in projects that we may never see. And I, I mentioned this in the article near the end is that it's not enough for me, this is my own personal idea, but it's not enough for me to say that Bitcoin, Bitcoin succeeds because it becomes the global money. Obviously, that's a very important thing. But mm-hmm. for me, what I think is really more impactful is being able to, from that, have uh, live in a world where my great-great-grandchildren that I'm never going to meet can live in a better world where they're, where this problem has been solved for them, right? Mm-hmm. Where they don't have to re- have this cyclical nature of, you know, fighting of these power structures and someone corrupting the money like you've had in Rome, like mm-hmm. we have today, right? I want this to be a solved problem so there's more ambitious things to be worrying about in the future. And I think that's what's interesting about money is a technology. And if Bitcoin is this, I, which I believe it to be this big, like, step-function innovation, we should be able to have that as like a bedrock for a better society. And it's just going to take time, right? Like it, mm. It's something that like today, like I personally don't have enough uh, Bitcoin laying around where I can start sh- shooting off into moonshot, like capital investments, right? To maybe build things that I may never see. But I think that's the macro thesis is that over time, as Bitcoin continues to accrue value. You will. I will be able to. Yeah. And, and ev- everyone from a previous cycle in future cycles, we will we'll be capital allocators. I've, I do a very small amount, uh, sure. uh, yeah, even some from my Bitcoin stash, some from the uh, podcast. Uh, and there is this kind of like embedded nature within Bitcoin is that they are very generous and want to support projects. I mean, all the developers are, tend to be supported by people 
allocating their Bitcoin capital to them. Interestingly, me and Danny the other night when we were up at the bar and we were having a long chat slash disagreement over my future Bitcoin. Because he said to him, you know, what are you going to leave it to your kids? I said, I'm going to leave them a little bit, you know, enough to give them a good stepping stone in life, but the rest will be deployed to projects and people that need it. Mm-hmm. And he was like, what the fuck are you doing? Just give it all, all to them. It's funny. Uh, when people ask me how much Bitcoin I have, I tell them, I don't have any. My children have all of it. <laughs> that's what I, because like, <laughs> I, like, I have turned of this, like that's just me being glib talking yeah. to someone asking about my Bitcoin. But uh, I think that is an important role though, is that we are able to be the change we wish to see in the world. Yeah. As a capital allocator, being able to break and ride around these systems. And they're, I think that's a, a noble cause because it's also you're like Bitcoiners in general. Not only are they generous, but they're very comfortable waiting a long time for a return, mm-hmm. right? Uh, I've I've been in Bitcoin since 2014. The, I think the price was somewhere around 250 bucks in that general ballpark. But seemed like expensive, it seemed expensive, right? I definitely like didn't save all of it at that time. I definitely like bond sold some, right? Like just kind of learning as the, everyone the, the journey that everyone does. Yeah. Uh, but it's now been like coming up on eight years that. I've had Bitcoin. Like I'm okay with that long-term yeah. prospect of being able to figure things out. So that's these are all the things that I start thinking about. Like, what is a future? Like, what are Bitcoiners supposed to do? Is like help invest and build those institutions we're never going to be able to see. Education, evangelizing, and for me personally, like having a family and like kind of helping grow the Bitcoin clan the easiest way possible. Just to have have Bitcoin kids. Well, what about so we talked about this idea of routing around. Uh, the current system. Yeah. You know, there is bad money, so we just created our own and mm-hmm. great. But what about this uh, part of what's been happening recently, which is kind of working also within the system, talks of creating, uh, these things I don't understand, but like super PACs and raising funds yep. and trying to influence and actually get pro-Bitcoin people uh, in Congress. Mm-hmm. There's like a lot of talk around that. And you know, Bitcoiners have a lot of money now. They have a lot of influence. I mean, do we think Ted Cruz just woke up a Bitcoiner, or do we think Ted Cruz realized there's a bunch of people who may vote for me and that might be good for me? I think it's likely the latter, but whatever route you take to Bitcoin, I don't care. But how sure. do you feel about the fact that, because if we're trying to subvert the system, we're also working within it. So are we Trojan horsing ourselves into this, or do you just think this is a natural reality? Or are you against it? So this is an interesting conversation I've had with Bitcoiners because they all come from different, they come down on different sides, right? Yeah. You have You have your... Anarcho-capitalists are going to say, like, you know what, the we we don't need to worry about it. Like, you know, let let the failing system fail, and then like a lot of people that I've talked to, I think are helping organize these super PACs that I've spoken with. Uh, I think there's a role for both. Like, I, I think that if you by by holding Bitcoin, you're taking like the active protest to route around it. Like, if like you don't, you're kind of partially opting out of a current economic system, mm-hmm. and then also if we're able to have a seat at the table. In the current political structure, I think that's you. I don't think it's wrong to at least try. My concern, and it's not even that I'm. I'm actually genuinely an optimist. I think within the current political structure, though, that we don't have the adults at the table. the the people The people who are running our political institutions right now, and people that are running, like the, the people who are at the seat of the table, are not our A team. And because they're not our A team, it makes me very um, guarded about giving that avenue too much energy because it, it's a, you know, in, in a certain sense, like you're able, you're giving them power as much as you're willing to give to them in investing time and capital. I think it's worth a shot, though. We, we might as well try before we say that it's not even worth it. I, yeah, that's the way I would view it. Do you think Bitcoin has its own? Its success is. Uh, means it has its own embedded growth obligation. This is a great point. Because yeah. <laughs> uh, if we get to a peak Bitcoin, like we have these cycles, but we get to a peak bit, peak Bitcoin mm-hmm. and Bitcoin price continues to slide, everybody has their like, shit, maybe I should sell a bit price. Like it isn't 64 for most people. It's when it comes down to 29, you're like, oh. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, it keeps chipping away, chipping away at people's like, should I sell, should I sell? And then when it hits the point, like no one's selling, right? Bitcoin goes back up. But what if that didn't happen? What if it's just like over the space of 10 years got lower and lower and lower? It kind of, it kind of, yes, it's this great technology. I can send it around the world. No one can stop me. It's instant final settlement. But we, we maybe lose security, but we lose, people lose interest. So I kind of feel like Bitcoin has a, a better growth obligation. Speaking with Eric on Clubhouse, he said that uh, like he hates he hates memes in general, which I think, as an aside, I think that's why, like Ben and Clown making WTF happen in 1971 is such a great like 
it's how a younger generation communicates ideas. Because now it's like, WTF happened in one is a Bitcoin meme, even though, but to the point about embedded growth obligations is the meme of number go up, I think is a very hollow idea where I've said number go up before, like when the price is ripping because it's just so fun and exhilarating. But you can't build, that's not that's not a sustainable pillar to be able to grow a, like a, a community. Like, I'm not sure if that's a, a dirty word to say if the Bitcoin even has a community or not, but the expectation that the number will always go up, I think is something that could be really destructive to how Bitcoiners organize themselves going forward. Because if the expectation is that it always goes up, I think even most Bitcoiners would say that we'll, we'll get to a point eventually in a hyper-Bitcoinized world where Bitcoin is the unit of account for everyone, that it kind of plateaus and maybe grows a little bit based on productivity gains over time. I still think that it's a fair critique to say that like the idea of number grow up looks like an embedded growth obligation to me. If you're just expecting it to go up, most people individually are not contributing to the network, right? They're holding, which in its way is own contributing, but... Um, I know what you mean. Yeah, but like they're not they're not working on the code. They're not building like on top of the Bitcoin stack or doing anything in the space to add value to it. Uh, I think that's a fair point, and I think that's something just in general we need to be uh, open eyed to and making sure that the a number go up is a means to an end of a better world. It's not just to make money to have money, right? Like there's supposed yeah. to be other responsibilities and other opportunities in the world that come from that. Well, it's good marketing. For Bitcoin. Uh, absolutely. It's the memes, yeah. Yeah, but but also at the same time, it's I'm with you on that whole idea, like number go up is just, there's so much more to Bitcoin than just making money. And yes, it's great marketing, but like I took my laser eyes off months ago because mm-hmm. I was like, no, this is wrong. This isn't, this isn't, should be the approach. Uh, and I feel like I'm much, getting much more interested in the things, the kind of things that Alex Gustin talk about, the things that Bitcoin could do. And the problem is that's not sexy. You know, he's, he is, uh, arguably one of the most underappreciated and underfollowed people on the whole internet with what he's doing. And yet everyone knows who he is. But like I think he it's he's scandalously underfollowed. I think he's I think he in some ways, outside of code or whatever, he is doing the most important work with regards to Bitcoin usage. I listened to your recent interview with Peter Schiff, and yes. you were trying to make this appeal of like, Peter, like, let's just put Bitcoin aside the price for a second, right? Like yeah. this is meaningfully helping people in oppressed countries. And, and he, I think he agreed. We got him. Y- y- you got him. That was yeah. big. Yeah. Uh, See, other you go through the YouTube comments. Everyone's like, "This is shit." Like, why are you having him on when we explain what's happening in Belarus? What's happening? Yeah, women in the Middle East. What's happening in Nigeria? He said, oh, "I can see." It should just be backed by gold. Like it's like whatever. But we had him. He agreed on a cryptocurrency, and I think he's close. And I, th- yeah, people are like, why do you talk to him? I'm like, when we get him. Because we will get him. When we get him, he will actually be an important spokesperson for Bitcoin. And other people like to say, just leave it to it. But if you can convince him, you can convince anyone. Yeah, no, I, I learned a lot from Peter Schiff um, during the 2008 financial crisis when yeah. I first started getting more economically and politically minded when it came to money. And he was a great resource for me. And I still think he is. Like, he's a very knowledgeable person. It's... Sometimes, though, it gets caught up in this idea of like markets and exchange rates and less of like, what is this technology fundamentally as a breakthrough innovation? He can't get away do. from requiring the, 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 the intangible versus the tangible. That's where he struggles. Yeah. And I think that's also an intergenerational thing as well, right? Yeah. Um, I know you're also, you're an old person as well, like Peter uh, Schiff. The fuck? <laughs> Who the fuck is this guy? How old are you? Me, I'm 31. Ah, you're a baby. Yeah. Yeah, I'm 42. Fuck's sake. Yeah. I'm so not getting old I'm people getting like you. My own show. Old people like me. God, I'm not old. Look, I've got tattoos. <laughs> Go on. Old people like me. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, the, fundamentally, though, they, they don't understand the idea of, of a digital world because it's something that grew up after them. Whereas someone in my age and younger, I grew up with an internet kind of budding. And do you people, remember when there was no internet? I do. Very like few memories. I remember being. Well, it must have been second grade, so I was like maybe 10, 11 years old, and my family got their first computer. Do you remember no phones before there was mobile phones? Oh, no cell phones? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Uh, do you remember when Tottenham was, last won the league? They've never won the league. <laughs> they did, like 1960. I don't oh, know about that now. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck, I'm so old. This is bollocks. Can we go down the pub? <laughs> we can do that. All yeah. right, come on. Come on. Yeah, okay. No, so, but fundamentally, not being able to view the world as a digital layer. Yeah. Uh, I think that's where like the abstraction kind of hits a wall, just from a mental models. Where if you didn't grow up with the internet, understanding digital goods, I used to, 
I mean, I, I used to play a lot of video games growing up. I used to work at an esports company. Like, like the idea of like digital competition and like digital stakes and, and being able to actually ground that in the real world. I used to sell World of Warcraft gold for cash and then I would use that to buy lunch. You know what I mean? Like it would be one of those things <laughs> wow. where like, yeah, for me, I very cool. quickly understood like, oh, this digital thing has value. That's cool with me. Like it doesn't matter that it's not physical. Yeah, and to get it even more, I've talked many a times, my daughter playing Robux, she Roblox and she has yeah. Robux and she buys mm -hmm. like a fucking giraffe and runs around and yeah. loves that shit. My son's on Fortnite. Yep. You know, they're like they just get it. Yeah, and that's why I think that it, in a certain sense that that's why I put part of like the, my personal ambitions as a Bitcoiner is to like have a Bitcoin family, like being able to pass those values down. Not that like your birth I, in Bitcoin babies. Well, it's a great way to grow yeah. the community. I think yeah. I have a hundred percent success rate because they're not going to be able to leave the house until they agree with me. <laughs> <laughs> my, my kids are Bitcoiners. Yeah, uh, yeah, they're interested. They, that's awesome. They ask a lot. Not enough, but my daughter more. She's actually a little rebel as well. She's a little. I think she's more. Is she coin joining behind your back? I think so. I think she's yeah. more libertarian than I am. Interesting. She's eleven. Bless her. Um, uh, yeah. So anyway, but what are we doing? What are we doing? No, yeah. I think this is. I think it's start. It's a. It's a question of top down versus bottom up. And I think Bitcoiners. I think the ethos of the technology and the people that it gets attracted to it are grassroots bottom up people. Uh, and because of that, we hit a schism basically where. Um, like Eric wants to view things from a top-down perspective, like take it to the economists and show them that they can't calculate inflation, which I tend to agree with. Uh, the, the fundamental problem, though, is that is that my what does that do? Well, what is that? Right, it's not like it's not like Chairman Powell's going to come out and say, you know what, I got wrecked by Bitcoin Twitter. I'm going to increase the interest rates now. Sorry, guys, I didn't need yeah. to do this. Like, it's not going to happen. Like, it's it's forty billion dollars a month going to housing market, mortgage-backed securities, and $80 billion a month just buying our own debt. Like, there isn't some sort of, like, grand debate of ideas, me personally, I don't think, where we're going to be able to course-correct this from the top down. And that's why I think, I think, like, the things that you're doing, Peter, like, going around interviewing, talking to people about Bitcoin, you're helping provide a spotlight for what people are doing in Bitcoin, what Bitcoin means to people. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, like, a way to provide a grass shoot for a grassroots bottom-up organization of people who are going to be able to loosely organize on principles and build a better future for tomorrow. Well, that's why, again, I keep going back to the El Salvador project. Uh, and I know some people are against the idea of a government mandate in it, but governments sure. mandate the use of sovereign currencies. Like, at least, you know, at least it's Bitcoin, but that is a grassroots project. And by the way, that project started a year and a half before Bukele's announcement. Mm -hmm. It started as a grassroots project by Michael Peterson, where he got a bunch of kids, he gave them work, kept them out of gangs, they earned the money, he got the local uh, Jorge's mother to the pupusria, which is also a little shop to accept Bitcoin, yeah. created a circle economy, she held on to some of that Bitcoin, she's now buying a car. Like, it was a grassroots movement, and it spread peer-to-peer -peer through Zonte to Tunco to San Salvador. Then it got to the US, Jack came over, yeah. he started his project, the president heard it, and here we have a country. Well, that's I think it's a perfect example yeah. of the actions of individuals. At the end of the day, me as an individual, what I'm going to be, because Bitcoiners don't have the mouthpiece of institutions, it's this grassroots one-on-one -on -one communication yeah. and putting skin in the game, believing it, and walking people through that journey. And I think the whole story with El Zante is a perfect example of someone who's really passionate about something and and you know, put a lot of time and effort into building that out. It must have seemed crazy up until the point it became the national currency of El Salvador, right? Right. Um, I think it's an amazing example of how us as individuals can have outsized impact of what we're doing. I said to Michael Peterson, I, I was with him, we were having dinner the other week, and I said, you do realize you may have been the trigger point for hyper-Bitcoinization. Yeah. Your decision to make this project may lead to the world adopting this as a standard because we've got the first country domino. Looks like we may get a second in Paraguay, Ukraine, and they're going to start falling. You did this. And I also said, and if it all goes fucking wrong, it's all your fault. <laughs> <laughs> there you go, exactly. He, he never wavered wants to take any credit. I think the guy's amazing. Yeah, it, but it's it's an individual who yeah. had a passion, saw an opportunity, and built it. I think another example would be like Jack Mahler's, like yeah. saw an opportunity, built a company, and now routing around all of those remittances. Like it's, at the end of the day, like, the the problem with with thinking too big, like trying to like uh, being Don Quixote chasing around like windmills, is that you get way too like blown up and abstract, and then it's hard to remove an accountability loop of 
what immediate change am I resulting in? Because mm-hmm. if you're trying to do this big fight, like what's your metric of success or progress? It's really hard. Whereas as an individual, if I can get someone to, you know, understand Bitcoin, maybe buy some like a little bit as part of their investment, hold it, their own keys, like that's the the grass seedling for them to be able to talk to someone else about it, right? And that's I think it's a tension point that Bitcoiners have just culturally wanting to be very grassroots and um loosely organized and decentralized. But at the end of the day, I think it's it's gotten Bitcoin this far. Well, the, the measurements of success are, are really interesting as well. Me and Danny, we just sat with a journalist talking about uh, what's happening down in uh, El Salvador. And when I was with Bukele last, the second interview, I asked him, you know, I said, firstly, people want you to fail. They mm-hmm. definitely want you to fail, even though that's not great, because they don't lose anything if you're a success, right. but a lot of people lose if you fail, but they want you to fail. So, like, what's your measure of success? And I could easily see if the price crashes that people will start hanky and some of the journalists will start writing what a disaster this project is. What they won't say, what they won't talk about is the fact that that perhaps they went from 70% unbanked to 10% because they've now got these applications on their phone where they can trade and, and use multiple forms of money. Mm-hmm. Um, they won't talk about the fact that the uh, Western Union is making zero money from El Salvador and that money's actually ended up in people's pockets in, in the form of dollars. Right. They will just look at the price and attack. And, and these measurements of successes... There's no like binary single success point, but there's, there are multiple measures that you have to look at. And I think we've got to be cautious of, of these shitty mainstream journalists who will want to pick their measure to attack these projects. I would agree. And I think it. Uh, the concern I would have is also just someone in good faith if the journalist was rooting for Bitcoin to fail from the start. But they all are, I think. I think mostly they are too. I yeah. agree. I mean, there's a special place in my heart for uh, Joe Weisenthal from Bloomberg. I like Joe. Yeah, I like Joe. He's he's one of the good fiat fiat minds around. Yeah, I mean, I I, I mean, I, I consider him a Bitcoiner, but with an ultra critical eye. I think ultimately, I think he's has reasonable critiques, and someone who's able to provide their own perspective and wrestle with those ideas, I think are people that are worth having in the conversation. Yeah, right. I think they're people who who make Bitcoin stronger by being able to have those conversations and critiques and causing a self-reflection, like the whole interview that you had with Eric causing some reflection yeah, yeah. on like how you interface with things. I think it, I think that's exactly, you know, we want to have these people around to be able to, you know, as allies, fellow travelers, whatever they may be, like, I, I think he's a positive net force for the whole movement. Well, that's why I, th- I sometimes think about how do we recruit these people. And I was like shift's reply guy for a long time. I still sometimes <laughs> I, I do it. <laughs> but no, I actually had a lot set up. So every time he tweeted... I would change his tweet to uh, everything with Bitcoin to gold and reverse it, just make his points. <laughs> but in, and, but one of the things I've noticed is like uh, if there's a public figure, a, like there may be an honest journalist, maybe hard to find, but a public figure, anyone who maybe has a critique of Bitcoin, something we may have all had early on in our mm-hmm. career, um, you go into their mentions and obviously it always shows all the people you follow first. Right. And it's just a list of people ranging from educated replies to harassment to abuse to like... Oh, and I, th- I don't think this works as a way of getting people on side. Yeah, I think there's... The problem, one, is that, like, how do you coordinate all of these people who pride themselves on being a jerk, right? You can't. You can't. You can't. You, can't. So you, you kind of have to almost, like, lean into it, right? Like, it, and at the end of the day, like, if, if Bitcoin's going to fail because people are jerks on the internet, it would never deserve to succeed, mm-hmm. right? Like, it's almost one of those things where, like, in... I would try to view myself as... I've been a dick sometimes on Twitter. Mm-hmm. I'm not above it. My my usual tone though is trying not to be too combative. Um, but it's one of these things where uh, what is it? You can get a you're more likely to get a fly with a sugar than vinegar, whatever it is, like honey. Yeah. Yeah. But the point being is that if you're nicer, you're gonna be able to bring people around much sooner and their ego, their individual like ego is less wrapped up in the in me versus Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. And you're able to kind of extend an olive branch to bring them in, and that's how you can grow the tent. Or you can tell them have fun staying poor. Yeah, yeah. I don't like that anymore. No, I say I don't like laser eyes. I don't like have fun staying. Poor. I, I get it, and I get memes. I get the importance of memes. Yeah. I, I just think I, on a personal level, decided like I need to engage and have proper conversations, and I want to get good people sat with each other. I want to get uh, Eric now sat with somebody else, sure. maybe because that one didn't work. But like, I want to get them sat with good people and have good pro- conversations that make progress right. rather than debates. I think that's fair. No, and I personally don't think people have fun saying poor. I usually break it down to someone a good faith actor versus a bad faith actor. Um, but even then, like I think the conversations though are what 
are important because it's just, especially you running like a podcast, mm-hmm. right? Being able to facilitate the best quality conversations is your way of being able as a force multiplier to expand the effect, right? Because if, you know, a lot of people listen to the conversation, maybe it shifts some perspectives in how people view things. Like that's how, it's a really incredible way for you as an individual to be able to have an extended reach to be able to help push the mission of Bitcoin forward, right? So in terms of what what are we doing, is it is it really more of the same? Like look at the progress we've made, look where we are, or is it more about every person thinking about themselves individually? Like what is your contribution and is it net positive? You know, how should we be using our time? Well, so my, my per- first criteria is me and my family, right? Is being able to understand uh, the, um, what positive impact I'm able to provide on the world. And I think that's the first step. And I think in the larger concentric circle of like myself, family, community, like when it comes to Bitcoin as a community, like the progress I think is uh, every day it doesn't go down <laughs> to zero is, is a huge success. And the ability to grow the tent and grow more allies, kind of to be an, a band of ragtags and misfits to be able to come band together and being able to, create a positive impact in the world. And I think as time continues, as Bitcoin continues to succeed, we're almost able to kind of level up in a way. I don't think we would have had El Salvador in 2017. We've almost leveled up now to mm-hmm. a level of maturity where we're able to have a nation state I run on think, this. I don't think anyone thought we would have it in 2021. I don't think so. No, it totally blew everyone's expectations yeah. away. And I think the question is, is like, as we're stable and we're able to keep on like organically growing out through honest trade and measure, like mm-hmm. how do we able to move it forward? Uh, that's... And there's, I have this quote I wrote down, I put it at the end of the article, and Peter Thiel talks about this, it's kind of like maybe the question of where I think Bitcoin can help. And he says, and as a side note, that whole three-hour interview, Bitcoin or the gold standard isn't mentioned once, which I thought was kind of crazy, that they, they're like, well, this whole stagnation, the whole technological trend, Bitcoin wasn't mentioned, which was kind of one of the prompts of why I wrote the article. But near the end of the interview, Thiel says, one of the challenges, and we should not understate how big it is, is in resetting science and technology in the 21st century, is how do we tell a story that motivates sacrifice, incredible hard work, and deferred gratification to a future that is not intrinsically violent? It's literally Bitcoin. Exactly. Literally Bitcoin. I think that's what Bitcoin's role is yeah. in like, what are we doing here? We're creating a future of deferred gratification and hard work, you know, tough economic calculation, uh, being able to view it in a sense of, you know, these Bitcoin that I have and I hold are something that I plan on being around for decades. Right, and that and that resets the entire lens of how I, as an individual, I'm able to orientate my actions in a more honest direction, and I think that's part of what what are we doing in Bitcoin? Is like, for now, we're just kind of in the reserves, all as individuals doing our best. But you know, as the project continues to grow, like that's we're gonna have like our tools ready at our hands to be able to kind of, as Bitcoin continues to level up, have a greater outsized impact in the world. And if we were to be sat with Eric right now, like, what would you say to him about this? If I was talking to Eric... Buy uh, Bitcoin, motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Um, one is that I've really appreciated all those conversations that I had with him on Clubhouse. Yeah. Like, He came in when the price was crashing. He's like, I'm here because I'm, I'm an ally of you guys. And I really appreciated that. Um, I've learned a lot from him. Uh, and ultimately, when it comes to Bitcoin, is thinking that if there's been a technology stagnation, maybe viewing money itself is a technology. And that the reason why we kind of dance around each other on like what came first, the money breaking or the technology breaking money is a form of a technology for like global coordination that maybe it's the same exact thing. And the reason why we're not able to jump forward is because the money's broken. We're not able to do that proper uh, capital allocation to that apple orchard metaphor I made before Mm -hmm. reaching those highest fruits, like the next rung of innovation. We're locked out because we're using a fake ladder of all uh, the gaming that happens. Treading water. Yeah, we're treading water. Yeah, interesting. Well, listen, I'm hoping to talk to him again. Um, Yeah, I'm in LA at the end of next month. I'm going to ping in. I want to have that second conversation. Part of me thought of doing it on my own. Part of me thinks I should get another person with him, like with a bit of prepared time. Uh, I I think knowing how that first interview went, I know how the second one should go. Mm Mm-hmm. And I, 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 I love the opportunity of like just, just bringing him a little bit closer in, and and, and I hope it can happen. So, that's brilliant. Um, I really enjoyed this, dude, and I appreciate you coming in. I think the article itself uh, was fantastic. We will put it in the show notes. Uh, we will share it out. I think you should come on the show again in the future. Um, 
I think you're a really valuable addition to the Bitcoin community. Um, and uh, you keep birth in Bitcoin babies. <laughs> we need as many as we can. And look, if people want to read the article anyway because they're too lazy to look at the show notes or they want to follow you, where, where can they follow you? Yeah, so my my Twitter handle is uh, at Rob1Ham, R-O-B, the number one H-A-M. Mm-hmm. And uh, you can look it up. Uh, just type in my name, Rob Hamilton, and Bitcoin Magazine. It'll probably be the first hit. And okay. yeah. Right. And my DMs are open, so uh, anyone wants to uh, shoot me a note or be a jerk to me, have at it. I'd love to talk to you. <laughs> Should we go and get a steak? I'd love to. All right, awesome. Okay, so what did you make of that one? Do you enjoy it? I think Rob absolutely smashed it. Definitely make sure you go and follow him on Twitter. I will be keeping a close eye on any work he does in the future, and I've told him any other big smashing article like that, he has a free invite to come back on the show and talk about it. What I found interesting is the idea that Bitcoin is routing around failing institutions because that's exactly what is happening in El Salvador. People that are being left behind by the financial system or beholden to the Federal Reserve money printing instead, because of Bitcoin, they now have the opportunity to opt into a new system that serves them better. Now, I still need to get back down to LA and twist Eric's arm, get him back on the show. I think the next time we have a chat will be a much better one. So I hope you enjoyed that one. If you've got any questions, you can jump into my Telegram group. We will have you covered there. Also, if you want to support the show, I only have asked one thing. Go over to Apple Podcasts, leave me a review. Hopefully you think the show deserves five stars. Outside of that, I'm going to be leaving New York tomorrow. I'm going to pop down to Mainnet today. Hopefully, get to see some of your Bitcoiners down there, catch up with some people. But yeah, I've had a great time back in New York. I've got a week off now. Got a couple of interviews to go and make. And then I'm going to be heading out to Nashville. Then it's Miami, Vegas. I think it's LA. Back to New York. Then to Texas. I think Texas again in the middle. It's going to be crazy. I'm going to be absolutely shattered. Hopefully, I'll get to meet up with some of you soon. Anyway, love you all. And I'll see you all later in the week. (laughs) 